and we'll read in verse number 1. So Judges chapter 13, and reading in verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of of the Philistines. And then down to verse 24. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan and so forth. Then into chapter 14. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother, and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. And his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, or among all my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Quite charming, isn't he? <laughs> Verse 4, But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had <laughs> dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down, and his father and his mother to Timnath, and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid and had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands, and went on eating, and came to his father and mother. And he gave them, and they did eat of it. But he told, them not, but he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made there a feast, for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass, when they saw him, that they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you, if ye can certain declare it me within the seven days of the feast, and find, out, find it out, then I will give you thirty sheets and thirty change of garments." But if ye cannot declare it me, then shall ye give me thirty sheets and thirty change of garments. And they said unto him, Put forth thy riddle, that we may hear it. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband, that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that we have, is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? 
And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her, because she lay sore upon him, and she told the riddle to the children of her people. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, If ye had not ploughed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and slew thirty men of them, and took their spoil, and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. It's a sad tale, but we do trust that we'll be able to learn some lessons from this this morning. As we think about Samson. Now, Samson had a very promising start in life. In fact, probably as promising as you could have thought or expected in that context. He had great prospects, great potential for God. God had promised to do great things through him. And he had been set aside by God as holy, sanctified. That's the idea behind the word, right from his conception. And was under the vow of the Nazarite. And when you vow a vow in the Old Testament, in the Bible actually, when you vow a vow, then there is an expectation from God that you'll keep that vow. In fact, you're better not to vow and break it than to, just you're better not vowing rather than vow and break it. And that is true of vows, but you see this vow of the Nazarite with Samson was a bit different because... Samson was a Nazarite, not by his choice, but by God's choice. And he'd been chosen before birth to be a Nazarite. So he was handpicked by God, set apart by God. He was given promises by God through his parents, and he was tremendously privileged. He was a Nazarite from the womb. We read that in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. And the word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazar. And it means to separate, and it simply means someone who is separated to God. And the Nazarite was separated to God in a very special way. And that was seen externally um, with his hair and his diet and so forth. And when you come into the New Testament, you have the concept of separation in the New Testament uh, under that word sanctified. And the word holy, again, these words are very close. And it's the idea of being separated from something, but separated to someone. So you're separated from the world, from sin, but you're separated positively to God. And that is the idea of sanctification. And if you want to find out a little about about these Nazarites and their vows, you go to Numbers chapter 6, which is the chapter that speaks about the Nazarite vow. And most Nazarite vows were temporary vows and someone would put themselves under this particular vow for a certain period of time and they would take it upon themselves and put themselves under that vow for that particular period of time. There are three that I know of, three Nazarites in the Bible that were different, they were perpetually a Nazarite. So it wasn't for a defined period of time, but was true of them throughout their life. You have Samson, you have Samuel, and in the New Testament you have John Baptist. And, by the way, the Lord Jesus was not a Nazarite. He came from Nazareth, and so he was a Nazarene. And that was to do with his geographical location rather than any vow under which he lived. So this 
perpetual Nazarite vow was by divine appointment. God chose it for them. That was true of Samuel, and it was true of John the Baptist, and it was true of Samson. Now, the rules of the Nazarite were that he was to be set apart and to be distinct even in his appearance, so that the normal uh, rules to do with hair length and so forth that God expects for a man were not to be for him. He wasn't to cut his hair. And this was to symbolize and it was to identify him as being a Nazarite. He had to have uncut hair. He was also to refrain from drinking of the fruit of the vine. No strong drink. He wasn't to touch wine, grapes or even raisins. Mind you, that's hardly a sacrifice. Who wants to eat raisins? But anyway, he wasn't meant to eat or uh, drink anything like that. And it was symbolic as well. There was a practical aspect to it as well, but it was a symbolic thing. So there was a restriction, self-imposed restriction upon him that he would not participate in that that spoke about luxury, significant luxury, the fruit of affluence, if you like, and the best that the world can offer, he would not partake of that. So he would stay away from that. He was also not to be in physical contact with death. So no dead bodies or anything like that. He wasn't to touch. In fact, when you come into the Old Testament as well, you learn that, that if you were touching a dead thing, then you would be unfit for tabernacle service. So there to be no defilement, ceremonial defilement, uh, I'm in this Nazarite either. So he was a man who was to be set apart to God, distinctively so. He had restrictions in his life, and these restrictions enabled him to serve God in a particular way. Now, when you read in Judges chapter 13, in uh, verses, I think, 4 and 5, yeah, at the end of verse number 5, it says this, that, Lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, no razor shall come in his head. The child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So this is his task. He is a deliverer. And he's going to deliver Israel from the oppressor, the Philistines. Now, he's not going to do this because he's some sort of superhero. You know, he's not like one of these cartoon characters or something like a Marvel comic. He's not like Thor um, charging about the place, hugely muscled and all that kind of thing. So he's not freakish. He's not like Goliath. It's not his human strength that's going to enable him to deliver Israel. So we're not told that he's a giant. We're not told that he's got absolutely massive biceps or that he's some sort of extremely skilled warrior or something like that. That's not the image to have of Samson. I mean, I'm not saying he's a wee wimpy guy who was running about, but he wasn't some sort of unusual, freakish physical specimen. You see enough of these around nowadays. But anyway, he wasn't like that. He wasn't like pumped up in steroids or something like this. So he didn't seem to be different from any other people uh, as to physical appearance. The secret of Samson's great strength lay in his adherence to that vow and his living according to that vow. So his source of strength came through the Spirit of God and God 
strengthened him as long, as we see, as he kept to that Nazarite character. Now, Samson grew up, and then you read um, towards the end of chapter 13 that the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. So, in his growing years, he began to experience the, the blessing of God, and the Spirit of the, of the Lord began to work with him, began to stir him. Now, every other time, by the way, when it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he became like this unbelievable wrecking machine, this like one-man war machine, and not on this occasion, but on other occasions. So the Spirit of the Lord is stirring him. I think it's a bit like Moses. When Moses was about 40 years old, it says that it entered his mind to visit his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. So the Spirit of God is beginning to work with him, beginning to stir him. Something's happening now with Samson. And as God's Spirit is at work, he's, he's gaining a heart for his people and a yearning to see them delivered from the yoke of bondage that the Philistines had placed upon them. So God's now moving in this young man's life. Now that's all good. That's all positive. That's all going in the right direction. So you can see that God's chosen this man to serve in a particular way. God's fitted him. He's a Nazarite from the womb. God has given instructions to his parents and they've adhered to them. His mother would have to adhere to this as well. They'd adhere to it he is beginning to have God work with him and in him. Things are beginning to go the right way and you would think this is a very positive story and it is up until this point. But now it begins to go wrong. And it begins to go wrong in the first four verses of chapter 14 with Samson's rebellion against his parents. And I've told my children that's where, that's where everything goes wrong. But actually, in Samson's case, it is where things began to go wrong. Now, his parents were godly parents. And Samson rebels against them. And he begins on a path that is downward and a very slippery slope. I read this somewhere. Now, if any of you know me well enough, you would know that if I speak about plants or anything that's kind of agriculture or horticultural. It's, it's not from first-hand knowledge, okay, <clears throat> at all. But this is what I read. I read about something called, I won't even try and pronounce the name of it, but um, it's commonly known as lobster pot plants. And the idea is, and it's like an illustration of, of the path that Samson's going down, so this plant apparently has a bulb on it. Now, whenever you say bulb and plants, that takes me back to Bridgeway Primary School in P4. And we used to have a bulb show. I don't know if you've ever had such a thing. And it's a tremendous thing. It's, it's for primary schools, obviously. But the idea was that you, you used to grow daffodils as a child. So we used to go at this with great seriousness. And you, you got the bulb and under the stairs and you were trying to get us to grow into nice daffodils. And then you went along to the bulb show with your bulbs. You see, and ours, because not only am I rubbish with plants, my parents are also rubbish with plants as well and flowers. So we would never win anything at the bulb show. It was always, it was like the judgment seat of Christ. You would go along with the expectation, you walk away disappointed. But anyway, so 
that's got nothing to do with this. But there, there's a bulb in this plant, apparently, and this bulb is sky blue inside. And it's designed very, very cleverly by God. There's a little opening, apparently, and the fly that will come along, buzz around this, this plant, and smell sweetness from within. So there is the attractiveness of the colour, and there's the attractive, attractiveness of the smell. Smell sweet. So apparently the fly gets disorientated, I'm reading, the fly gets disorientated and the smell draws the fly into what is a corkscrew stem. So the fly is flying blind. You can't see where it's going really. But it follows the smell. The smell of sweetness. Now apparently, and this is going somewhere, apparently the stem has spines like turnstiles. So it's the idea if you pass through the turnstile, you can't go back through it that way. So every time the, the fly goes down a little bit, it passes through one of these stems like a turnstile. And apparently when the fly goes in, it hesitates every time at the first little stem, first little turnstile. But the, the smell draws it on and it breaks through the first one. And once it's broken through the first one, it can't go back. And then the smell draws it on further and it keeps going through these stems until it reaches the bottom and it is consumed by the digestive juices of the plant which smell sweet and it's consumed by it. But the idea is this, that when that flag is in there and starts down that path, it goes past stages from which it cannot return. And down it goes down it goes, drawn on by the sweetness that lies before it, which ultimately consumes it. That's Samson. Samson goes stage by stage down that slippery slope and he never gets back up the place that he's come down until he is consumed by that which attracts him. It's a sad story, but it's not an unusual story. And it begins with his rebellion against parental authority. That's where it begins. Now that parental authority was good here, it was godly, it was spiritual, it was wise. And it starts with a woman. It says in verse 1 that Samson went down to Timnath and he saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now notice his attitude. His attitude is very selfish and demanding. <clears throat> His language, verse 2, I have seen. She pleaseth me well. She is right in my eyes. So it's all about I, and it's all about me, and it's all about my. So the focus of his language is on himself. And as he expresses his attitude, his demands, his demands are selfish. They are self-serving. So he's telling his parents what he wants them to do and what he wants them to do which is best for him. So that's his attitude, that's his mindset. He's not asking them for permission, he's putting demands upon them. And he's making demands that they do something that pleases him. Now this is the very hallmark of our materialistic, hedonistic society. Essentially, 
which instead, in terms of society generally now, it is driven from, in terms of the age spectrum, it is driven from below rather than guided from above. So you have a youth-driven culture rather than a maturely guided culture. So the driver is from underneath. Here it was with Samson. And Samson is driving, he is pushing his parents, his spiritual authority, he's pushing that authority to facilitate his sin. Now just think about that. This is hedonism. If I want it, I'll have it. If it feels right, it is right. If it looks right, it is right. If it satisfies me, it's good. I'm going to take it. I don't care the consequences. I am interested in me. And only me. Actually, as you go through Samson's life, you find that this is a problem that he has. And the problem comes through his eyes. His eyes were really the biggest problem. He couldn't control his eyes. He allowed his eyes to, to, to linger on things and to see things that he shouldn't have. And he's guided by what he sees rather than by what he ought to know. So, for example, in chapter 14 and verse 1, I have seen. In chapter 16 and verse 1, then went Samson to Gaza and saw there a harlot and went in unto her. And isn't it... A, isn't it it's not a surprise, but isn't it apt that in chapter 16 and verse 21, the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And he was humiliated. His eyes were his problem. His eyes featured right throughout his life. And eventually he lost his sight because of his sin through his eyes. Now again, I'm just going to make one or two comments about things as we pass on. This isn't really what I want to major on this morning, but it's worth pointing out that we live in a voyeuristic society more than at any time, simply because we have the technology to do it. <coughs> and the whole YouTube vlog culture, if you think about it, is built upon our desire to see into other people's lives. So there's a whole industry that's built upon that. Even things which are humdrum, day-to-day -day things of life. Millions and millions of people follow individuals or families going about their daily business. That's voyeurism. That is standing apart and looking in to someone else's life. And living your life mentally in your mind through their experiences so that when they do things it feels as if you're doing it with them that's voyeurism that's a very insidious aspect of society because what it means is that you are driven by what you see now of course that is the way our society and culture and economy is driven but there is there is a there's a very insidious side to that and so even following and liking and all this kind of stuff it's all part of that and it all comes down to feasting your eyes so you feast your eyes upon things you don't possess which stirs up covetousness to possess them 
That comes through feasting your eyes. And that when you feast your eyes enough on something, then you're going to be provoked to do something to get that, or to possess it, or to experience it. Voyeurism. Well, Samson's problem was he went somewhere and he saw something, and he wanted it. He wanted it. And it was a woman. And sadly, Samson may have had great physical strength as the power of God came upon him, but when it came to women, he had absolutely no strength. No strength of character whatsoever. And what he wants in verse number three is what in our New Testament is called an unequal yoke. So he says that he wants to marry a daughter of the Philistines. Now, this is, you know, this is not a kind of, um, this is not something that is superficial and silly. This was a very serious issue. This is not, oh, you're only allowed to marry someone with a Scottish accent. You know, it's not that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's not as superficial as that, although that is quite a serious issue, but <laughs> it's not really as superficial as that. There was a spiritual element to this. And how many times... We'll dig into this for a minute or two. How many times has this scene been repeated nowadays in Christian homes? <coughs> and the son comes to the parents and says, I want to go out with her, I want to marry her, or whatever. And the question that the parents are wanting to ask, one question, is she a Christian? First question. That scenario is unfolding in Judges chapter 14. It's the very same scenario. It's the very same initial response of the parents. Because whether you know it or not, that is the great concern of parents when they have children. It's the great concern of parents. The second biggest issue in life. So the greatest concern is salvation. Is your child going to be saved? That's the first priority. But could I suggest the second priority for your child? Will your child marry another Christian? That's the second biggest priority. And that is the priority that is expressed by Samson's parents in his context in the Old Testament. And so this scenario unfolds. And you get language like this. I don't really care what the Bible says. You know, we've fallen in love. By the way, love isn't something you fall into like a pothole in the street. It's not something that takes you by surprise and you fall into it. That language is not biblical, by the way. That language is also very dangerous. Love in the Bible does obviously involve physical, emotional attraction. We're built that way. That's of God. That's all... True and correct, but it's more than that. <coughs> In the Bible, love is volitional. It is a matter of choice. You make decisions. You have perhaps attraction towards another person and so on, but then you make decisions. And the decisions that you make have to have a basis. They have to have a foundation. You can't base all of these decisions upon your emotive attraction or your physical attraction because the person you're attracted to is more than the physical they're a person 
and they're a whole person. And so you make decisions about the whole person, not just one element of that person. And when you read about love in relationships in the Bible, it is a word that speaks about action, it speaks about choice, it speaks about decision, it speaks about responsibility, it speaks about all of these things. So and by the way, don't use that word flippantly or lightly to someone either. I'm way off track here, but you know, that word is used far too quickly and far too easily between a boy and a girl nowadays. Here's a little confession. There's actually only two women in the world, three now actually, that I've used that word to personally. One's my mum, one's my wife, and one's my daughter. And that's it. Never used it to anyone else. Because it's never been true. And when I was going out with sharing my wife now, it took me a long time to use that word. I was afraid to use that word. That's a big word. It's a big word to hear from someone. And particularly, guys, you be very careful who you say that word to because that means a big, big thing to someone if you say that to that person. So that's not a word you bandy about, you know, when you've been to McDonald's for your first date or whatever it is. You go, hopefully not McDonald's. Hopefully my son's never did that. <laughs> anyway. So here is an unequal yoke brewing. Now, in the Old Testament, there were unequal yokes that were forbidden. I won't give you the quotations, but in Ezra uh, 9, verse 2, and in Malachi 2, verse 11, the, these are just verses that taught the children of Israel that they had to marry uh, someone else of the children of Israel. Now, God established those marriage laws in the Old Testament because he wanted that nation to retain its distinctiveness amongst the ungodly nations. Now, when you come into the New Testament, we have quite specific instruction about that. But Samson's parents are trying to reason with him from biblical truth. In verse 3, his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife? So he's saying, is there, is there not someone amongst your own people? Why are you going to, to one of these Philistines? So you see the concern. Well, when you come into the New Testament, there is different language to teach the same thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through to verse 14 is the section. And this is the sort of language that the New Testament uses for the people of God. That is, for Christians, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? You know, what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now, by the way, we don't worship in a temple. We are the temple of God. And so he says in that section... Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So that in the New Testament, you have this teaching. That those who are Christians, those who belong to God, those who are believers, should not bind themselves permanently, and that, by the way, is what marriage is, should not bind themselves in the most intimate and permanent relationship between two people on earth, should not enter that type of relationship with someone who is not a Christian. And the reason is that you cannot, therefore, share all of your life with that person. 
fact, the biggest part of your life you don't have in common. Because you're not a Christian. Can I tell you this? By observation, even within our own family, you'll discover this, that what starts like this goes like that. There's a divergence that goes through time. And that divergence is inevitable because you do not have the very centre of your life in common with the person to whom you are married. And that is Christ. If you get to the stage where you're arguing from the scriptures and where you are resisting what the Bible simply says, could I suggest you've just popped through that first turnstile. You've started and you're on your way. That's how serious that is. Samson is going there. Now don't get me wrong. You know, people have married uh, other people who are not Christians. They have got saved. That is true. And going on well for the Lord, that's true as well. So people will say, well, you know, I'm now with a non-Christian. They got converted. It was, it was a kind of missional type of thing. It must have been God's will. Even read this quote, I left my wife and I married a non-Christian and they get saved. God moves in mysterious ways. That would certainly be mysterious. And what they're saying is be, because of the outcome that God actually brought about, then the process must have been correct. And that's a very dangerous thing. That's pragmatism. Actually, someone who gets saved in these circumstances are an evidence of God's grace and providence and overruling. And you think about what God has done and brought out of our lives when we've been doing things we shouldn't have been doing, when we've been in a spiritual place that we should never have been and so on. And God and his grace and his providence can bring things out of that but it does not mean that we're in a safe place or a right place in the process. Well, that's what we find in verse 4, because in verse number 4, you have testimony to God's providence. For it says, his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. So he sought the speaking of God, by the way, not Samson. Samson wasn't seeking an occasion against the Philistines. He was seeking a wife amongst the Philistines. But God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And even though Samson was rebelling, God would still have his way. There still would be an occasion against the Philistines. And the lesson here is that when God is not allowed to rule, often he overrules. He will use Samson passively, if not actively. He will use his strength. He will bring about an outcome. But it will have a devastating effect upon Samson. But the outcome will come about, and actually in Samson's death, he destroyed the flower of the Philistine army, which laid the way, by the way, for Samuel's victory to follow. Because the Philistine's army was weakened to such an extent that when Samuel went into battle, the flower of the nation was gone, destroyed by Samson. And so he did pave the way for a great victory, but at terrible cost to himself. So you come to verse 5 to 9. And we've got this line. So, so get your mind into the, if you would, into, into the picture. You've got Samson and his beginning. It's all very positive. It's going well. Then Samson sees a woman and he wants her. So he's going, he started to go down this path. Okay, so he's, he's on the path. 
This is the beginning of a parent's nightmare, heartbreak. Make no mistake about it. <coughs> and to, to see your child start down a path and you know how it's going to end must be heartbreaking. So Samson's on his way. And he has pushed his parents. They've yielded, but he's pushed them. But what we now have is, what I'm going to suggest to you, is the grace of God in Samson's life. So he rebels against his parents and actually now renounces his vows. Not audibly, but by his actions. And all his parents are doing is kind of riding along shotgun there. They're just there. He's pursuing a path against everything he'd been taught. The whole direction of his life. But God will not let him go down that path without an intervention. Now here he's in verse number 5. He's going through a vineyard. Now of all the places that a Nazarite shouldn't have been walking through is a vineyard. So he's like sailing close to the wind. He's just there and thereabouts. I mean, there's no suggestion here that he's eating. Of the, but I mean, he's walking through a vineyard and that is the place where the things that he should not be eating grow. So he's as close as he can get. So it's a dangerous place for a man who's not supposed to have anything to do with grapes. Now, it says this, Behold, a young lion roared against him. Now, if you're walking down a, a road, and I've never had this experience, if you're walking down a road and you meet a lion, it's not the kind of thing you meet in Bridge of Weir often, but a young lion at this. Right, so you meet this lion, there's only one thing you're going to do. Well, you might just sort of freeze, but once you've recovered yourself, you're going to turn around and run for your life. That's the normal effect, I would suggest, of a lion on a path. Can I suggest to you that this line is an evidence of God's grace? Surely Samson should have turned in his heels. Surely this would have been a reason to change direction, to not go where he's going. God sends a lion into his path. Mind you, it was an unclean animal. He did kill it with his hands. So he's now unclean. He should now go back, according to number six, back to the tabernacle and cut his hair and start his vow again. But just think about this and think about this for a moment or two. In practical terms. Has this not happened to you? It's happened to me. It wasn't a lion. It was something. Or someone. And you have begun a path that you know is wrong. But you're going to do it anyway. You're determined to do it. It's as if you're walking along, la 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 la, with your hands in your ears. You will not listen to godly advice. You will not listen to the word of God. You have the blinkers on, the muffles on. You are going down this path. And God, in his grace, sends a line into your path. Something or someone to stop you in your tracks and turn you around. Something so fierce that you'll walk away from it. Could it be that you're out 
somewhere and out work colleagues or something and you're going to do something or go somewhere you know you shouldn't but you're going to do it anyway and you meet someone and there's just that moment of clarity just that moment of clarity what am I doing where am I going and it's like a bolt from the blue it's like a voice that just blasts at you and you've got a decision to make replicate that little point into your own experience and the lion so what does he do he kills the lion he destroys the obstacle and it says that the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him because whenever he went into battle so called God's spirit came upon him and he received this huge strength and he uses it to kill the lion that was the obstacle for him going down that path of disaster So instead of taking the warning, instead of turning around, instead of going back, instead of stopping, what he simply does is he's so determined, he destroys the obstacle and over he goes and on his way. I wonder if you've maybe done that in your experience. And God in his grace has put a proverbial line in your path. And you've looked at it, you've thought about it and you've said, no. No, no. And you've simply destroyed it. And you've moved on. Well, there was only one line. One line was gone, it was gone. And now there's no obstacle between him and disaster. Well, what he did in verse number six, because the consequence of destroying the line was that he was now defiled. So he's externally a Nazarite now, but internally he has lost his sanctification. You see the pattern when you make decisions like that? And you're still going on externally and everybody thinks that you're just doing okay as a Christian. You know, you're suited and booted and you're at the meetings and, you know, you're, you're living this parallel life. And as you're living this parallel life, you know, everybody thinks everything's okay. You know it's not. Externally, you're fine. Internally, you've lost your sanctification. You're internally defiled. That was him. He was a hypocrite now. And he does not tell the spiritual authority in his life about what had happened. In verse 6, he told not his father or his mother what he had done. So now he's having experiences and he's keeping them private. He's not sharing. So there's a whole complex thing going on here. But then we're very complex, aren't we? As individuals, as Christians. So many layers, so many layers. And we have some people that we peel some layers off to, other people that we peel some more layers off, and there are some that never get to see any layers peeled at all. <coughs> Complex. We make that complexity ourselves by this sort of behaviour. And what then happened in verse 7 down to verse 9 is that you have this whole thing with the honey and with the bees and the lion and so forth. And... He went down in verse 7, he talks with the woman, he's, he's really chuffed with himself, he's pleased, uh, and she pleases him well, and it just looks everything's going well, you know. And, and after a time, he, he comes back down to take her to his wife, and he decides to go and see this lion. 
and the carcass of the lion is there, and then, of course, the bees and the honey. He sticks his hand into a dead body. This isn't putting his hand into a tree. This is putting his hand into a carcass, and he brings the honey out. He brings the sweetness out, and why would you even do that? Why would you, why would you even do that? He takes the honey out of the carcass of the lion, and he eats it. And this is a vivid picture of sin. Think of this. You have death and defilement in the line. Death and defilement. You have sweetness experienced by reaching right into it. Right into the heart of it. You carry that honey with you as you go on your journey. You share it with your parents, with others. And you tell lies. And you cover the extent of your defilement. That's just like sin. That's just like sin. And so what you have here is Samson defiled. Samson practically has renounced his vows of separation. And it's come gradually. It's come subtle, subtly. And he's, he's now involved in deception. If you'd stopped him in the road and said, Samson, are you a Nazarite? You'd say, of course I'm a Nazarite. Look at my hair. But the external appearance contradicted the spiritual reality of his life. He valued his consecration to God so lightly. He had become comfortable and was increasingly comfortable with breaking his vow and increasingly breaking his vow and decreasing sanctification became the pathway of his life. Listen, if you begin that, if you begin that road, I'll tell you that road gets steeper and slippier. And if you begin that road and become comfortable with breaking your sanctification, you'll find it easier to continually break it and to increasingly break it. Make no mistake about it. There's no question about that. You'll become comfortable with a seared conscience in an environment and in practices and in a, a separation from the Lord and a distance and you will, it will become your normal disposition. It became Samson's normality and it was far from what God would have for him. And you see that because in verse 10 down to verse number 14, he starts to joke about his defilement. So the thing becomes a huge joke at a wedding. What's he joking about? He's joking about the loss of his consecration and sanctification and usefulness for God. That's the joke. It's not funny. It's not funny in the slightest. You know, what I find is this. When people start to go down that path, they start to joke about it. And they start to tell you jokes about it. And it's very uncomfortable. And this becomes a big laugh. This is the sign of his insensitivity. If his comfort zone is reached with his defilement, he's treating his sin and the holiness that ought to have characterised him flippantly. He's talking about his faults and his backsliding frivolously. And he's at this wedding and he gives this riddle to 30 companions. He's the big man and he's telling a riddle. The whole thing's a big joke. Except it wasn't funny. Here's a man, and his language is all about women and clothing and honey and 
fleshly things. So he tells the riddle, how do you get life out of death? Out of something that brings death, God can bring sweetness, and so on. And actually, when you think about it, that's true of the cross, but that's another thing to go into. When you think about what Samson was doing here, it ended a disaster. What else is going to happen other than disaster? How could there be a good outcome here? Samson has bypassed his parents' his parents' principles. He's bypassed the providence of God in his life. And he's bludgeoned on and he's joking about the violation of his vows and his consecration. And he's in amongst the Philistines. Okay. Do you think that the Philistines are going to play by his rules do you think that they will take their lead from him and his standards he's in amongst them should it be a surprise to him that they behave like Philistines with their cruelty should it be a surprise that they have cunning should it be a surprise that if you Mix to this extent and associate yourself in this way with ungodly people that they will behave in an ungodly fashion. Should that be a shock and surprise? And there's something violent and foul about these Philistines and they get a hold of Samson's wife and they say, if you don't tell us, we're going to burn you. We're going to burn your family. Okay, that's quite fierce. That's ungodly. But if you're amongst the ungodly, you must expect them to behave true to character. And there you are. Just use the analogy of you, your work colleagues, and you've got you've got a line that you're not going to cross. Can I tell you that? That's nowhere near the line that they're not going to cross. That's nowhere near it. Your line's here. Their line's somewhere out in the horizon. They're going to go way beyond what you're comfortable going beyond, even in your backslidden state. And you think that you're not going to be involved in that. that they're going to go out and enjoy themselves to your baselines. No, 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 no. If you're with them, you go to their baselines. That's exactly what happened to Samson. He lost control of the whole situation. And he was the big man at the wedding. He's suddenly not the big man anymore. He's been played. And he's been played by the very object of his affection. The one that he broke his consecration for. Should that be a surprise? That's what happens. That's what happens. So he walks down this pathway, the girl betrays him. Finally he gives in. So sad. And there is, in verse 19 to verse 20, an explosion of pride in Samson. He's raging. That he's been conned, played. That the Philistines have behaved like Philistines. I can't believe it. And so what he does is just this. He needs to get these 30... um, Articles of clothing. So he goes and kills 30 people. Just said like that. 
Can you imagine you walking down the road and Samson decides that you're one of the 30 and he's going to take your clothes? 30 people slaughtered because of a riddle, because of pride, because of decisions that he took. It's a very, very sad story, but the saddest part is at the end of the, end of the chapter. You remember how it all began? He saw a woman. She pleased him well. What happens at the end of the story? The brutality of these Philistines, they took that woman and they gave her to someone that Samson thought was his friend. You see, Samson is blundering about now. He thought that the Philistines were his friends. He thought he could mingle amongst them. He thought he was just like one of them, but he wasn't. And at the end of the day, what's he left with? Nothing. He's left with nothing but broken vows. What a sad, sad story. You see, that's a sad story. That would never happen to me, can I tell you. That could easily happen to any one of us. Me included. Happened to us all. If we start down a pathway that Samson went down, it could happen to any one of us. And so we need to learn from Samson. The need, could I suggest to you, to respect and submit to spiritual authority in our life. In your case, that may be parental, it may not be parental. Your Christians may not be parents. Your parents may not be Christians. But there will be spiritual authority in your life. Older saints, saints with wisdom of years, who've seen it, who know what's going to happen. And you need to submit to that authority and listen and take the advice and realise that sometimes that instruction, biblical instruction, is not going to feel good when you put it into practice. It's going to feel frustrating. It's going to mean denial of what you really want. And then they started down that path, Samson started down that path, and God in his providence puts a lion in his path, and he just bludgeons right over it. And on he goes, implicating his parents in his defilement, rubbing their face in it, so to say, bringing them into the whole thing. And then, of course, finds that he's out of his depth. He's out of his depth. And Philistines are Philistines, and they're Philistines for a reason. And when they behave true to character, if you're a true Christian, you're way out of your depth. You're way out of your depth. And that's what happened to Samson. And he got played. And at the end of the day, he destroys, he kills 30 men. And out of spite and out of pride and out of anger. That's hardly how a man of God should have been moving for God. And amongst the Philistines. It's not a great story in that sense. But I tell you this, it's a salutary story for our day. And we need to take account of it. And we need to guard our heart and our eyes. Every one of us. Lest we begin down that road that Samson walked. Thanks very much. Let's just commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer.